the Buddha said, who knows dependent arising knows the Dhamma, who knows the Dhamma knows dependent arising. Which means that the teaching of the dependent origination is the centerpiece of his Dhamma and shows us the cause and effect that exists within us and outside of us. There are two teachings of dependent origination. The one that is more widely known is called the Lokya Paticca Samupada. Lokya means the worldly. It is the worldly dependent origination. And we can make it even longer, the name. We can call it the worldly 12-point dependent origination because it has 12 points. And you have probably seen and have already um, discussed at other times the drawing that goes with it, the circle of samsara, which starts out with ignorance and goes through the cycle of three, the past life, this life, and the future life, from ignorance to renewed birth and death. And within that cycle, there is one doorway where we can step out of that cycle. And that doorway is between feeling and craving. All the other steps, all the other dependent arisings are automatic causes and effects unless we step out there. Now that point between feeling and craving is exactly the point that I've mentioned earlier today when I said don't move impulsively, instinctively when you have an unpleasant feeling. That's it. Right there. Unless we learn to live with unpleasant feelings and with pleasant ones in without wanting to get rid of one and without wanting to keep and renew the other, we don't have access to that doorway. Then we keep on circling around in samsara over and over again. Now obviously it is impossible for anyone without practice and training not to react to unpleasant or pleasant feelings. But at least we can make a start somewhere. Unless we make a start at some time, we haven't got any handle on the past. 
So this is where we can make a start, right here now, when the feeling in the body is unpleasant because of posture or because of sickness or because of anything at all. And that feeling is unpleasant. To try and react to it with equanimity. Equanimity is that fourth one of the four Brahma-viharas, which is also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Equanimity is the pinnacle of all emotions. It is not indifference. I will talk about equanimity at another time, but it is the one emotion that we need to cultivate and foster within us so that our feelings no longer get the better of us. As long as they get the better of us, we are a victim. We are victims of our feelings, we are victims of our emotions, and being a victim means we are not really free. The Buddha's teaching teaches us freedom. Freedom means being independent. This one step in that whole chain of dependent arising is the one we need to pay attention to. Everything else are automatic results of the primary fact of ignorance. Now, ignorance in the Buddha's terminology, in Pali, Avicca, does not mean that we have no education. On the contrary, it is often said about the Westerners, they have far too much education. It means that we are ignoring the basic facts of existence. And that ignoring, which results then in ignorance, is the underlying cause for the then following chain of causation. From ignorance come the karma formations, which are the mental formations, which are thoughts. It's sankhara, which is the second step, are, the, are our thoughts. They are forming, and with that forming, we are also forming karma. Within our thought processes lies our karma. We've got to watch our thoughts. That's what meditation is all about. To eventually become master of one's mind, so that the mind does exactly what we want it to do, and is no longer playing games with us. As long as it plays games, we have no control over its formations, and therefore our karma is a mixture 
of wholesome and unwholesome. And then it goes down the chain from the karma formation comes the rebirth consciousness. And from the rebirth consciousness, we get mind and body. That too is an important point to look at. Because the picture that is usually shown is of a boat with a passenger lying prone in the boat and another one paddling the boat. The one who's paddling the boat is the mind. The one who's lying prone there and being carted around is the body. So this is another very um, significant aspect that we need to watch mind, thought, because body just follows along with what mind gives out as orders. From that we get our sense doors, which are five plus thinking, so there are six shown. And from the sense doors, we get sense contact. All this is automatic. There's nowhere we can put a stop to any of that. We wouldn't want to. We wouldn't want to put a stop to having the sense doors, nor can we put a stop to having sense contact. At this point in time, the contact that we're making is one of touch, one of sound, and one of sight, and hopefully also one of thought. So all these contacts are being made at this time. And we are constantly making contact. We're constantly having something that we either see, hear, taste, touch, smell, or think. With these sense contacts, there is an automatic result of feeling. The Arahant, the fully enlightened, also makes sense contacts and has feeling. There's nothing wrong with feeling. The feelings that come from the sense contacts are three kinds, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And our reaction to it then gives them the kind of names and kind of uh, importance, whatever our mind wants to do with them. When it's unpleasant, we can say pain. When, we, when it's unpleasant, we can say anger. When it's pleasant, we can say uh, lovely, whatever it is that our mind says. And here is the door from the feeling which has arisen from our sense contacts to the next step, which is craving. Now, craving is both. Craving is wanting to have and wanting to get rid of. It's the cause of all dukkha. It's the second noble truth. There is no other cause for dukkha except craving. And this is what makes our lives unfulfilled, unsatisfactory, which causes us to search for something else. 
which is a good thing because if we didn't search we'd stay within that cycle of birth and death and wouldn't ever find the door out once we have missed our chance however when from from feeling to craving we've missed the point and have already reacted with either like or dislike then the causation chain takes its usual course and can't be stopped any longer because from the craving comes the clinging and from the clinging from the clinging comes the becoming and the becoming makes birth and death arise and usually what we find on the um, explanations we find that it says and so arises all the dukkha and it is always shown in a circular uh, picture which has usually three circles the outer circle containing the 12 cause and effects the middle circle containing the six realms of existence and the inner circle containing the uh, three unwholesome roots greed hate and delusion which are usually depicted by a snake a cock and a pig who are holding each other's tail and are therefore making a circle of their own the snake is the hate because of the poison she carries the uh, cock is the um, greed because he has a barnyard full of hens and the uh, pig is delusion because it covers its eyes up with dirt delusion means always in buddha's terminology the illusion of a personal self that is the root delusion and this root delusion of having a personal self <coughs> then brings with it all the other problems we do have three wholesome roots also which i may mention at another time but at this time the emphasis i would like to place is on the fact that there is a second dependent origination and that one is called lokutra paticca samuppada and lokutra means transcendental otherworldly and that one is not shown in a circle that one is a straight line and it goes from here to there the circular one shows us the way it is drawn quite clearly that we're caught in a net and it was the buddha himself who made that very first drawing of the circular one he drew it in the sand and the monks were so delighted with it because it is an excellent teaching aid that they asked permission to draw it 
themselves on the walls of the monastery. And the Buddha gave permission, and those were the monasteries in India in those days of the Buddha. And at that time, the Buddha also requested that in each monastery, one monk would be instructed in the exact meaning of this drawing so that when visitors came, he could explain it to them. And this was done. But all the monasteries were destroyed in India when the Muslims came. And the drawings were then perpetuated in Tibet. And the drawings which we can find today are beautiful and elaborate and are, of course, the um, artist's own imagination in it. But they go right back to the original instruction of the Buddha. Although the um, transmission says that they were much simpler in those days because they hadn't, didn't have the elaborate um, ornamentation, they, their, their substance is exactly what the Buddha taught. Now the second one does not have a drawing to it. The Buddha never made a drawing for it. He just taught it. And it shows us in very uh, quick succession, in 12 steps again, how to get from this worldly existence to Nibbana. And I'm sure it's nothing new to you when I say that the whole of the teaching and the purpose of meditation in the Buddha's dispensation is nothing but getting from here to Nibbana. Now that may sound as if Nibbana is a place. Some people think like that. It's not. Nibbana is a state of mind. And we have that state of mind. Otherwise, we could never get there. But it's covered over. We haven't quite got to it yet. It's a state of mind. It's enlightened mind. In our tradition, the candles on the shrine are the symbol for enlightened mind. The light that the mind that's enlightened has. If we didn't have that within us, 45 years of teaching by the Buddha would have been in vain. After his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he first enjoyed, as it says, the bliss of Nibbana. And after having been there for a month, he considered spreading this news to others. And as he considered it, he thought that people would not be able to grasp the profundity of his teaching. And that would be a vexation to him. So he didn't want to teach. And the story says that the highest of the Brahmas, the highest 
of the god realms, Samapati, came to visit the Buddha and begged him to teach for the benefit of gods and men. And the Buddha reconsidered and with his divine vision looked to see that there were some people who had little dust in their eyes, which means little dust in their inner eye, and so he decided to teach. There are always those, and always have been those, that can use the teaching to go all the way to Nibbana. Then and now, nothing has changed. We have exactly the same problems that the people then had, and we have exactly the same potential and facility within us. And anything that we do in the Buddha's dispensation has that as its goal, as its purpose. It has as its goal and purpose the constant letting go of that which is covering over our Nibbanic condition within our own mind. The transcendental dependent origination starts out with what the other one ends. The other one ends with dukkha. So arises all dukkha. This one starts out with dukkha. Dukkha does not mean tragedies. Dukkha does not mean necessarily pain. It does not mean being unhappy. It means all that, but it means far more than that. And that's why this, the one Nupali word, which I never try to translate, because there are too many possibilities for it. It means that we cannot find total satisfaction anywhere within existence. Now only when we have understood that will we no longer suffer from that. Until we are still looking for satisfaction. While we're still looking for satisfaction within the worldly existence, and we're looking for satisfaction from other people, from their appreciation, from their uh, kindness, when we're looking for satisfaction in situations, because they are a good situation, because everything is there that we need. We're looking for satisfaction in our knowledge, in our own goodness. All this will disappoint us. That satisfaction cannot be there for one very simple reason, which we all know and constantly disregard. For the simple reason of impermanence. Anicca dukkha anatta are the three characteristics 
of the whole of existence, anicca's impermanence, dukkha we know, anatta, is directly translated non-self, means no core substance. As long as we are having an idea that there is something in the world that will make it possible for us to be totally happy permanently, so long we'll be unhappy. It cannot be found. And this is our reason for not being happy. We look here, we look there. We go from one place to another. We move our residence. We change our partners. We um, change our diet. We change our religion. We change our meditation. We change our exercises. We go from one thing to the next. And what happens? We'll have to find another thing. It's called papancha. The word papancha in Pali really tells already the whole story, doesn't it? It has the sound of its meaning. Papancha means proliferation. Nature proliferates. If you look at the number of species of trees, birds, flowers, insects, the different colors everywhere to be found, the proliferation even in human beings. There are very few sitting here and none of them look alike, and yet they're all human beings. Nature proliferates, and as long as we go along with that, we are looking for something other than what we have. This looking for something other than what we have is dukkha. It means there's an emptiness within which wants to be filled. There's this little empty spot which wants filling up. And unless we see it quite clearly, we always try to fill it up from outside. Somebody is going to do it for us. But we can't fill it up from outside. There is no opening to stick it into. We have to fill it up from inside. And only when we realize that can we start a spiritual path. As long as dukkha, which arises within us, causes us to react in the many popular ways that are usually there, namely, First one is blame someone else. Very, very popular. And seems an easy way out. Doesn't work at all. Because not having dealt with that particular dukkha, it arises again and again. Our whole sojourn in this life is like an adult education class. And if we don't manage to pass the exams, we always have to go through the same class again. 
just like in school. So one dukkha we can't deal with is bound to come up again. All it is is another exam. So the first thing that we do with dukkha is blame someone else. Other times we may have the idea the best thing to do is to run away from it. And we have so many possibilities. Distraction. We don't even have to physically run away from it, although we do that too, of course. But we can run away through our distractions. Books, uh, radio, discussion, all sorts of distractions are possible. If we don't do that, we can also try to become, uh, have self-pity. Now that too is popular, of course quite useless and making us unhappy. And once that has set in, the next step is also very near at hand, namely depression. From self-pity it's not far to depression. Some people actually hang on to their dukkha. They want to keep it. Any kind of advice how to get rid of it is not well taken. And why is that? Because they feel alive with it. It's their own. They own it. So it gives them a sense of at least being there, even though it's dukkha. Dukkha is our best teacher. It is the one teacher that will not be persuaded by any kind of misery that we put out to let go of us. If we say to a human teacher, I don't feel well, uh, my back aches, I can't get up in the morning, I, I'd rather go home. Well, the teacher will say, well, I'm very sorry, but if you want to go home, well, you must go home. If you say to Dukkha, look, I don't feel well, my back aches, I want to go home. Dukkha says, that's fine, I'm coming alone. There's no way to say goodbye un unless and until we have transcended it. Now, the transcending of Dukkha means that we have looked it squarely in the eye and seen it for what it is, a universal characteristic of existence and nothing else. It cannot be anything else. The reason we are fooled is because we have so many pleasant occasions also in this life. We have many pleasant sense contacts. There's a lot of pleasantness arising in our lives. So we are fooled by this and think, oh yes, if we could just keep this going, this pleasantness, then Dukkha would never come again. And we have to try over and over again until in the end we finally see that the pleasantness will not keep going. It is impermanent. And yet, 
the whole of society, not only in the West, everywhere on this whole globe, is built up on just that concept. That pleasantness must be possible to perpetuate. This is how our economy works. You can't sell anything that doesn't provide pleasant feelings. Nobody's going to buy unpleasant feelings. <laughs> so we keep on getting something else, getting something new, because we are, everybody else is doing it too. The whole world lives like that. And it was so pleasant five minutes ago. So why can't we keep it that way? Why can't we continue? So we must get something else or get the same thing back and keep forgetting that that isn't possible to keep it going. And we also keep forgetting that that pleasantness is due to sense contact and therefore has to be impermanent. No sense contact can remain permanent. It would become most unpleasant. Just imagine for a moment that you had a very nice meal and you say to your host that was a nice meal and the host says oh I'm so glad you liked it we have so much food here please keep on eating another two or three hours well it's misery isn't it physical and mental misery a meal can last 20 minutes 30 minutes at the very most and then it's over and then it has to be <coughs> and then we have to get it again or for instance we're very 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 cold and we want to take a hot shower so we take a hot shower and we say to our friend oh this is lovely wonderful this hot water and the friend says, oh, we've got plenty of hot water here. Be my guest, another five or six hours, wouldn't matter at all. <laughs> Dreadful. Absolute misery. Ten minutes, fifteen minutes. How long can one stay there? And it goes like that with everything. Whether it is taste or touch, sight or sound. Some things can last a little longer, but all of them have to be finished before they become utter misery. And this is what we rely on. These contacts is what we rely on to make our life pleasant and happy. Whether these are actual physical contacts like I'm, what I mentioned or whether it's just another person or talking or anything like that. We rely on those things to make our lives happy. And yet, after having tried it many times, it must come to our notice that not only is it impermanent, but even when it is most pleasant, it leaves something to be desired. There is no total satisfaction, and that's Dukkha. There is no total satisfaction. That's the only real translation of the word. And that, in our lives, brings us 
to the point where we think, well, if we can't find it in those sense contacts, and if we haven't found it with people, then we may be able to find it on the spiritual path. But even that may go astray if we don't realize that there too is lots of dukkha until the time we have transcended it all. The Buddha said there were four kinds of people that go on a spiritual path. One kind has a lot of dukkha and takes them a long time to get any results. Another kind has a lot of dukkha and they can do it very quickly, get results very quickly. Another kind has a lot of sukha, a lot of pleasant feelings, and it takes them a long time to get results. And another kind has a lot of sukha and they can have quick results. There is that one kind with a lot of sukha and quick results. But if we don't belong to them karmically, we also have to accept the fact that as long as we are within existence, there will be dukkha. It's as simple as that. Nibbana goes beyond existence. Within existence, dukkha is. And if we accept that, we don't have to suffer from it. And this is the most important aspect of understanding Dukkha. That it is, but we don't have to suffer from it. And once that has happened in our lives, then of course, we are able to go ahead and have a lot of Sukha on the spiritual path. That dukkha exists physically is a well-known fact. Even the Buddha had physical dukkha. And he said that the untrained, unenlightened disciple has two darts, two arrows that uh, pierce him, whereas the enlightened disciple has only one. The one dart or arrow that pierced one, is the body. Bodily pain is a given. But the unenlightened, untrained disciple reacts with the mind. So then, when the body hurts, the mind hurts with it. The body hurting is something that even the enlightened one cannot stop. But the mind hurting that we can stop. So when we experience dukkha, and it is not necessarily physical dukkha, although that's part of it too, this body is so fragile and so prone to decay, disease and death that there's always something wrong with it, whether it is old age or whether it's just a cold or whether it's a backache or whether it's a toothache, there's always something wrong with it and we have to constantly look <coughs> after it. But the mind does not have to go along with that. We also have to accept in the realm of dukkha that this body 
will never give satisfaction. Now, people who are older find that quite easy to accept. It's for the young ones where it's difficult. The Buddha called that the intoxication with youth. And Bernard Shaw said, youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> this body needs constant care and attention because it's always falling apart. Once we see that as part of this whole dukkha existence, we may get an inkling that it might be much better not to reappear in such a body. Once we get that idea, some vega arises, urgency, the urgency to practice. This body has to have food put in, digest, go out. And again, put it in, digest, and come out. A constant process of in and out. It has to be constantly cared for with being cleaned, with having rest, with uh, cutting this off, cutting something else off, with uh, taking medicine for something. There's a constant array and, and uh, bother about the body. It is hardly possible to say that this body gives pleasure. When one is very young, this is difficult to see because the body is still very strong and uh, doesn't have too many aches and pains. So it is uh, more difficult to accept the fact that it would be much better without one. But if you can imagine for just one minute to, that you were sitting here in meditation without a body, wouldn't it be much nicer, much easier? Maybe that can give a good idea on how unfortunate it is to have such a body. However, the Buddha said, this is the best realm, the human one, to gain enlightenment, because we have plenty of dukkha, particularly with this body. But it doesn't come to the point of having no sukha at all. We do have sukha, pleasure. So there is a balance which makes it possible for us to practice. In the lower realms, lower than human, the, the dukkha is so great that practice is almost impossible. In the realms, realms above us, the sukha is so much greater that the urgency to practice disappears. There are always devas present who are practicing, but they are minority. But then, of course, with humans it's the same. We're also a minority. Anyway, without, with this body giving us this constant poke that something should be done, we then need to find out that it's actually the reaction in the mind which brings about the dukkha. And again, I'm going to refer to the unpleasant feelings that we get when sitting. If we have no reaction to them, no dukkha. It's only the reaction to the unpleasant feeling which brings the dukkha. 
So this is a very important practice point which can be done right here now. We don't have to dream of dukkha in the future or that we ever get rid of it or something like that. We have it with us right now. We get unpleasant feelings in the sitting position after some time and it's only painful if we want it otherwise. If we accept it as it is, just as an unpleasant feeling, there is no suffering at all. And this is what the Buddha talked about when he said that we have two doubts that poke us. The enlightened one only has the body to worry about. That dukkha stands at the apex of the transcendental dependent arising is is clear because it also stands at the apex of the Buddha's explanation of his enlightenment. The very first thing he said was that there is the noble truth of Dukkha. And because this is stressed, often it is misunderstood to say that the Buddha's teaching is pessimistic or that it stresses only those aspects in us which are suffering and pain and unhappiness but it's just the opposite his teaching shows us what there is that is unsatisfactory and how to overcome it he said there's only one thing I teach and that suffering It's often thought that the Buddha teaches a doctrine where suffering is going to go away because one has meditated long enough or something like that, or or suffering is going to go away because one sees everything differently. It's not that at all. Suffering isn't going to go away. The one who suffers is going to go away. And that is the way of the dependent arising, the transcendental dependent arising. The Buddha also said, there is the deed but no doer. There is suffering but no sufferer. There is the path but no one to enter. There is Nibbana but no one to attain it. Now again, it doesn't mean that we can't attain it. But it means that if I want Nibbana, it's out of reach. (coughs) It may be sounding like one of those Zen paradoxes, but it will become quite clear as we go along. At the apex of the whole of this dependent arising stands the fact of Dukkha, the fact of the unsatisfactoriness of existence. And all of us are experiencing it. We are experiencing the fact that we are not totally satisfied. We are experiencing the fact that there have been things in our lives which we would rather not have 
had happened. There have been things in our lives which we would want and they didn't didn't come about. And they are coming, they are happening now. So when we have dukkha now, the best way to look at it is with gratitude that it is happening again to teach us that important lesson. It is useless to want it to go away. It's impermanent, it will go away anyway. But if we don't learn the lesson that it's trying to teach us, it will come back in exactly the same manner. If we learn this particular lesson, it will come back in a different way. Until we see it for what it is, universal existence, nothing else. None of us have a monopoly on it. None of us are uh, picked out to have particular dukkha. It just is. The acceptance of it just is is the first step towards realizing this path. Dukkha is. And there are people who live very um, pleasant lives and can still realize it. There are people who live very unpleasant lives and don't realize it at all. They're blaming circumstances. They're blaming the government. In some cases they're blaming the atom bomb, in some cases they're blaming the economy, Uh, all sorts of ideas what people have, what they can blame. Yet they can see in their lives that it is something that they need to learn from. We have that opportunity every day. There's hardly a human being that wouldn't have some dukkha every day and not necessarily physical. And that, to use that, to see the connection between the first and second noble truth makes it so much easier to realize the, the practice path. The connection is the wanting they either wanting to have or to wanting to get rid of. That's the connection. And in everything that we experience as unpleasantness, that is the underlying cause. And once we can find the cause, what it is that makes us either want this or not want that, we can also learn to drop it. And learning to drop it will then give us so much more ease, so much more energy, which is set free for the practice of this path. Because while we're still using our energy, our mental energy, to want certain things and not want others, we are not free enough to use it to practice with, with great determination. I once gave a meditation course for um, a bunch of youngsters, teenagers, 
on my nun's island and I wanted them to have the personal experience of what it meant to get rid of dukkha. So I asked them, I asked them to do an experiment to find out in themselves whether there was anything that was making them feel dissatisfied, unhappy, anything at all. And then for just one moment, drop that wish of either having or not having and see whether Dukkha disappeared. And the next day I asked them whether they had done the experiment. And one said, yes, she had done it. I don't know what the others, only that one said she had done it. And I said, well, what did you do? She said, well, since she'd been on the island, all the time she had been coveting this little bell and cushion and tassel. And she'd been thinking about how to make one like that and where she could get one like that and how she could um, um, maybe find out where it is possible to purchase it. And she realized that with thinking like that, after I told about Dukkha, she realized that this was making her very unhappy and very agitated. And so she just forgot about this little tassel and cushion and bell, and she felt very happy. So I could maybe recommend the same kind of experiment to you. It doesn't, it's not going to turn into this, I know. This was in Sri Lanka, where things are a little harder to come by. Our material needs are well taken care of in the West. But look inside as an experiment and see what it is that gives you dissatisfaction, that you're not satisfied with. What is it that has any kind of hold on you that gives a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of um, worry, if it's a future, what is it? And then, just for a moment, drop the whole thing. Just let it go and feel the relief. And then, after having done it for one moment, maybe you can do it for many moments. It is a worthwhile experiment, especially if you can find something inside of you that has been recurring, something that is a recurring um, dukkha agitator. <laughs> it was useful for these uh, teenagers to experiment like that because the words are concepts. It's the experience that counts. We always compare this with the taste of the mango. If one tries to tell somebody what a mango tastes like. All you can say is, it tastes very nice. It's very sweet. It's delicious. It's very juicy. It's very soft. But does he know what a mango tastes like? He has to bite into it. And then he knows it's not a peach. It's not an apricot. It's a mango. It's different. And the same with all of this. It's all taught by the Buddha for the only reason to experience it ourselves. But his guidelines 
are the important aspect that we have then, when we use the, the guidelines, we have the understood experience. We have the experience within and we know what it is. And that's why his words are of such importance to us, but only when we use them. Knowing them is one aspect. Remembering them is the second. And then actually working with them to experience it ourselves. Those are the three steps that make wisdom arise. I think that's enough about Dukkha this morning. You may have some questions. I would like to explore where it is that um, the impetus of pain of existence becomes the path and not perpetuating itself. I, I know you've been talking about this the whole time in some sense, but I want to make sure that I understand it because it's so easy to forget. Um, for instance, often when I, I feel like bodily pain is easy because you can say, oh, this is a body and bodies are impermanent and I'm going to get older and die. But when it's mental pain, say, I say to myself, oh, you know, I really should practice because this is, feels terrible. But sometimes um, practicing um, is in the wrong way. It just makes things worse, and not even because it's revealing something, because actually it is making it worse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me ask you first this. When you say practice, do you mean you want to sit down and meditate? Right. Okay. Because meditate is not all that is practice. There's more to practice than meditate. Or even whatever you would like to expand on would be helpful. So when there is a mental pain, um, it would be very surprising if you could sit down and meditate it would be a surprising thing to do that the mind would be able to uh, focus on a meditation subject. Right, while well, you're attempting to sit down and meditate, yeah. you're really just sitting down and yeah. experiencing pain. Right, but what you can do at the time is to contemplate. That is, sit down like this, or outside somewhere where nobody will disturb you, and go into that pain and find out what is the cause of it. Why is there this pain? What is the cause of it? And not be um, satisfied with the answer, oh, well, because so-and-so said something. That's only the superficial cause of it. That was the trigger. The trigger was somebody said something, or somebody, uh, something happened, whatever it may be. That's the trigger. But there's no need for that mental pain unless there's something inside of oneself which is reacting to that outer trigger. So first you find the outer trigger, which is probably well known to you at that time, the outer trigger, unless it's just um, 
what we call in German Existenzangst, the fear of existence, you know. Um, but if it's an outer trigger, that one isn't well known. But then you'll have to find in yourself the reason for the reaction of dukkha, of, of pain. So the, react, the reason is, I didn't want it the way it was. There's no other reason. I didn't like it the way it was. But why didn't I like it the way it was? Usually the answer would be because my ego was hurt. That would be the usual answer. So the bottom line of the whole inquiry is always ego. That's always the bottom line. But it's no use saying, I oh, yes, the bottom line is ego, I know this already, and keep on having the pain. That's useless. But what is useful is to go through the whole process that the trigger, the outside trigger that caused it, then the personal reaction, why was this reaction, I didn't like it that way, I thought this was, you know, I thought that person should think better of me or whatever it may be. And then the reaction of uh, feeling painful because the ego is being hurt. And then coming down to the understanding that the reaction is the dukkha, it's not the trigger. I have a, um, like a formula says don't blame the trigger. Never stay with the trigger. Always go and, and investigate what is it in me that's reacting to that trigger. And unless we find in ourselves this reaction to the trigger, we're going to react to the same trigger in the same way. It's like a pre-programmed computer printout. You press the same button and the same printout comes out. Unless we finally see that it's nothing but a button that's being pressed. And then we don't have to have the same printout. We can stop it. Now, in the beginning, that's painful to stop it, naturally, because we have to look at ourselves in a way which we don't really like to know about ourselves. But that's all right. We don't have to have this exaggerated idea of our worth, nor do we need an exaggerated idea about our non-worth. We can just accept the way things are. So, sitting on the pillow in such an instance is very good, but trying to meditate is useless contemplate and the contemplation the cause of the mental pain well for instance um, that's very well taken that it's a reaction to that and, you, and I can understand that it's like that it's the ego's offensive so at that point when you're actually feeling that um, it's not it doesn't seem to be enough to actually consider that because it actually does come up again. In fact, the next time it comes up again, you can have the extra um, irritation of saying, I knew it was going to happen again, and now it is. <laughs> <laughs> you mean after having gone through the whole thing and seen that it's just the ego uh, that is reacting, uh-huh. you will react again. This is very natural. What we know and what we can do is miles apart. It will have to happen several times until you're able to say, let it go. It doesn't matter. You see, it is, uh, it can take, uh, it will take time. I can't say how long. It takes time. We know so many things that we can't do. There's a time lapse in between. But knowing it 
It's your only hope of ever being able to do it. Unless you know it, you can't ever do it. So if you realize it's nothing but the, the ego that wants support, the ego that wants um, appreciation, the ego that wants to be, um, have strokes, unless you know that, and then being able to eventually shed that um, idea of having to be appreciated from outside, and going inside and seeing and finding whether there really is an ego there other than in one's consciousness and finding that maybe one day you find, well, there isn't anything. At that time, of course, there's no need to support it from the outside anymore. But even on the way there, you will find that your inner support system will grow through the meditative practice. And that inner support system then takes care of not having to look for an outer support system. This is one of the um, problems that most people find in their life, that they're looking for an outer support system and can't find it. So the inner support system takes care of that <clears throat> through enhanced meditation practice. You see, it's like this. You can also look at it like this. Um, as you keep on practicing meditation and introspection or contemplation, they're the same, introspection, contemplation. As you keep on practicing, you're getting a different view, slowly, gently, and things do change. That's a guarantee. They do change. How quickly they do, that is impossible to say. And uh, how far they will change is also impossible to say. It depends on one's own determination and uh, also a state of mind which is unimpaired with too many viewpoints. Viewpoints are very detrimental to one's uh, progress. But everything changes so that the things do not look the same anymore. You have to find that inner support system which comes through your practice. Does that make sense? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> Yes. I came up, I believe last night you talked about Iskandas a little bit. Okay. And I was wondering, you didn't call them Iskandas per se, but I think you talked about them. I was wondering. Mm, yes, yes, I remember. Mm -hmm. What the point is in the skandhas that we could step out of samsara? Well, that uh, belongs to a further step on the line along this um, um, dependent origination I'm talking about. Seeing things as they really are is one point along the line. Uh, the skandhas, by the way, is uh, Sanskrit. We call them the khandhas, without the S. And, um, in English of five aggregates and uh, they still uh, none of them really uh, say anything well again for your own practice when the unpleasant feeling arises in uh, in any manner or form whether it's in the sitting position or whether it's in a in a mental uh, state to realize this is a feeling it isn't me it isn't mine 
It is a feeling which has arisen, for instance, in the sitting position. It's a feeling which has arisen. I haven't asked it to come. It just came by itself. So why do I think it's me and mine? Where does this a consciousness of me and mine come into it? And we can eventually actually realize that this is nothing but habit. That we're thinking of me and mine as habit. And that we can change that consciousness. But it takes time and practice, naturally. But the feeling, for instance, is a very strong thing to work with. With the body, well, all of these things that we did this morning, for instance, the contemplation where I said, well, I'm of the nature to be diseased, it gives an idea, for instance, that nobody likes to be sick, and yet the body gets sick. So where's this ownership? Where's the ownership of the body? If it does things that it isn't supposed to be doing. See, if you own something, if you own this thing here, you can do with it what you like, right? You can throw it away, you can uh, use it, you can give it away as a present, you can do with it what you like. It's yours, right? You own this thing. But what about this body? It does things that you don't like. And still, we think we own it. <coughs> These are contemplative, very important contemplative um, aspects which you can use in the meditative procedure. You can, for instance, in meditation, look at one aspect of the khandas or several of them and see when they arise, like the body is there. You can feel the body in the sitting position. And maybe it is giving an unpleasant feeling. You can see, is that mine? Does it belong to me? Is it really me? Why, is, why am I saying it's me? Where am I getting this idea from? So this is one way of working with the, with the khandas. And as you see, the, the khandas are the um, linchpin of the ego delusion. Because all of that hinges around those five. Another thing that you can do with those five, because there's no I in, in, in any of the five, is you can investigate inside of yourself whether there's anything else to be found other than the five. And once you can't find anything, once you can't find anything, then you can investigate, well, where is this which says they're mine? These are all uh, contemplations. But they can be done in the meditation. Does that answer that? Yes. What really got my interest with today, you said that uh, the point between uh, feeling mm-hmm. and uh, craving. Craving. Before you could chop it. And mm-hmm. that was for the Nidanas, is that right? You were talking about the Nidanas this morning? <coughs> the uh, 12 steps of yeah. causation? Mm-hmm. And good is, for that is what? The, the Pali is Paticca Samupada. Paticca. Yeah. So, I guess I'm wondering, I thought it would be more simple if I could, since there's only five skandhas, mm. and there's twelve of these things, and it would be simpler if I could just find that little spot <laughs> in the skandhas, or do the same thing. It's a, oh, yes. Let's do the same thing. Yes. Oh, certainly. Uh, the other 11 points, uh, I, I mentioned that, are automatic results of causes. There's nothing we can do about them. 
Once the ignorance is there, the ego delusion, which means that we've been born, that is the ego delusion, we're here. There's that, that circle has only one doorway, and that's from feeling to craving. And in the khandas, you only need one also. You also only need the feeling one. So that's the only one you need. So once, so that means that when you get an unpleasant feeling, you look at it and say, well, it isn't mine, I don't have to react. But not indifference and not suppression. Now that is also a danger. Because we can suppress feelings quite easily um, by putting on our, our mind on something else. And that means that we are not acknowledging them. But we must acknowledge the feeling. It is there. We acknowledge it. But we do not react to it. And that's equanimity. That means that we realize this is a feeling, but it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't, it's not owned by me. Now that point of departure there, between feeling and craving, is uh, exactly, for instance, what um, he was just talking about when he has mental pain. He wants it to go away, right? So it's painful. But if it's just something that arises and we can let it go again, then it's not painful. So you can work on it that way. There are so many approaches, they all lead eventually to the same thing, that the ego is seen for what it is an imposter, public enemy number one. Hmm? Thank you. Okay. Hmm? Yes. This is the same subject. I'm wondering how Vipassana helps in this process of separating the reaction from the feeling. You mentioned contemplation. Uh, you're talking about method, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. method, right. Well, the, uh, that particular thing of feeling and reaction is actually something that comes up during our daily lives. So it means mindfulness. The word vipassana, uh, we call it vipassana, not vipassana, vipassana, okay? <laughs> right, the same thing. Um, means insight. That's all it means. It doesn't mean, um, uh, it means clear seeing. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't uh, actually mean a particular method. It's the goal and the purpose of the whole practice path. And it's the two ways of, um, uh, of using our meditative procedure, calm and insight, samatha and vipassana. But it doesn't necessarily denote just a method. Although there is a method which calls itself vipassana, which is actually um, not correct. Not one single method should call itself vipassana. Uh, vipassana means insight. That means introspection, contemplation, will bring insight. Not necessarily. Not for everyone. It may and it may not. One has to... Uh, the Buddha also compared the Dhamma to a snake. He said, if you pick up a snake by the tail, it will undoubtedly bite you. You have to pick it up behind the head. 
you have to pick up the Dhamma in the correct way so that it doesn't bite you. <laughs> so the, uh, the introspection, which means mindfulness and attention to one's own inner happenings, that brings the understanding of what is going on. Now, yesterday I only mentioned mindfulness of the body, kaya nupasana. Now, the second step is vedana nupasana, which is mindfulness of feeling. And I will teach, teach you tomorrow a method for that. Okay? A method for vedana nupasana. And, uh, but the method itself is not sufficient, just like the loving-kindness meditation method is not sufficient to have loving-kindness. These are all helps on the way. But what is essential is mindfulness, attention to oneself, to one's own reactions, to feelings, feelings being both physical and emotional, and then seeing that the ego is doing this, and then seeing that whether that is necessary or not, which means a day-to-day, a day-long activity, mindfulness on oneself. Now, naturally, when you use um, some contemplation, contemplating possibly the khandas, or contemplating the diseased, the body that is diseased, and all these things, that does help. But the biggest help is the mindfulness in daily living. Because it seems that we have perceptions that everybody does, and it seems that when we have, then we have the reactions afterwards, and the, mm. the reaction is the ego part, there's no, there's mm-hmm. no way to get rid of the well, perceptions of what's happening. Um, I'm not sure whether the feelings are actually part of that perception or feelings are part of the reaction. No, neither way, neither one. The way it works is like this, sense contact. First is the sense contact, right? Then after the sense contact comes the feeling. After the feeling comes the perception, and after the perception comes the mental formation, which is the reaction. So, in a, again, when we sit here, we first have the sense contact of sitting, right? Then comes the unpleasant feeling. Then comes the perception which says this is pain, and then comes the reaction which says I don't like it, my blood circulation is going to stop, I'm sure this is nonsense, I should have sat on a chair or whatever, right? The whole, the whole gamut of it. So, the... the um, the, the departure is between saying this is painful to I want to get rid of it. That's the point of departure. <laughs> now, does that explain it or is there something else on that? The, perce- the perception is saying this is painful, right? Mm-hmm. But the next point is, I want to get rid of it. And this is where the point of departure is. So it is very important to watch this just, just in the sitting position. Because any physical pain, the immediate reaction is, oh, I don't like this. Or in any mental pain also. But here we have a good... That, uh, Possibility. Was that what you? I think that I think we're saying the same thing. Because mm. you're, you're, the mindfulness would bring you in touch with the pain of what's happening. Mm. 
and then because you're mindful, you're you're right there with it, mm -hmm. and then you don't have to take the next step of wanting to leave or wanting to. Mm. Yes, mindfulness acts like a brake on a car. If you drive a car without brakes, it's potential suicide. If you have brakes on a car and you come to a dangerous corner and you step on those brakes, you slow down the car to the point where you can change the steering wheel and you can go in a different direction and escape the danger. With mindfulness, exactly the same thing. When you step on the brake of mindfulness, you slow down and you do not have to react. Say, I, I can't stand you, I'm leaving. You don't have to react like that. You can look at, you can just slow down and see, oh, this is a dangerous corner. Maybe I can change my direction. Maybe I can just take time to consider what's going on. So it slows one down to the point where we have then the ability to go inside of ourselves and see what is really all this. That doesn't mean that we can uh, handle all situations. The Buddha often um, advised people to be together with wise people, with those who help one. It is, um, he mentioned this many times. So we are not uh, by that immune from uh, being uh, thrown by some situation, but at least we do not react impulsively and instinctively. This impulsive, instinctive reaction is usually um, causes grief for both sides. <laughs> okay. Hi, Kim. I'm interested in the uh, notion of birth and what it is that's born. From the viewpoint of enlightenment, for instance, what what would be said about birth? Well, I think that possibly our two traditions differ there. I think there may be a difference there. So I can only answer you from my tradition. That's all I know. <laughs> the um, in the uh, worldly depend origination, we come to the rebirth consciousness which the first thing is avijja, the ignorance, second thing is the karma formations, and from the karma formations, which are the mental formations, comes the rebirth consciousness. This rebirth consciousness is the craving to be here. With, and that craving to be here brings with it the karmic residue that was in that particular mind. So what we are seeing as a rebirth, or as a birth, well, as a rebirth, everything's a rebirth, we've <laughs> all been here before, um, is the craving to be here, which makes the birth happen, and the karmic residue, the resultants, the vipakas, the karmic resultants, which come with it. And uh, so we cannot say that from an um, absolute standpoint that there is a person that's being reborn. It just looks like that. But uh, from the relative standpoint, it's an individual that's being born. From the absolute standpoint, nothing is being reborn except the karmic residue. That's what's happening. But I think that in your tradition, there's a slight difference in that. 
because there, there seems to be an idea of a voluntary rebirth. We don't have that. But uh, the karmic formation thing is uh, causing birth. Mm. So that through the meditation you would discover the unsubstantial quality of that whole situation. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So that actually uh, not being, not having to be reborn mm. would be simply discovering that nothing was ever born. Uh, not quite. Um, we are born. <laughs> but what you discover through this process of insight, which arises through your meditation, uh, meditative process, is that the uh, craving to be here disappears. There's nothing worthwhile to be here for. And in that, in, uh, in that this, um, situation, where you go beyond existence, there is nothing that gets born, and so nothing that dies. And the person who is now here, who has been born, discovers that this craving to be here is totally unnecessary. In fact, it's an aberration of the mind, a mistake. 